Um, question to start us off then. I wonder what we think is wrong with the world. What's the nature of the evil that besets us? Uh, that's what Genesis, early Genesis, is all about. So Genesis chapter 3, human nature is to rebel against God's good rule. Genesis 6, every intention of our hearts is only evil continuously. Genesis 9, even the most righteous people on earth do fall into sin. These early chapters of Genesis have been described accurately, I think, as true myth. Uh, the literary genre is mythology, with some degree of connection to actual past events, but the accounts are primarily concerned with relating theological truth. We can stumble over the extent to which history is in the mix. So just a few minutes as we start on that, and then we can look at chapter 11. Young Earth, the traditional view in Christian and Jewish theology until the 19th century, saw a high degree of connection between early Genesis and the past, to the extent of Bible literalism. Days always mean 24 hours and years always mean 365 days. By contrast, a synthetic approach combines the special revelation of the Bible with the general revelation of scientific inquiry. And I'm conscious saying that, that we do indeed have several scientists in the Zoom room with us here. Where a broad scientific consensus conflicts with traditional belief, it's not the Bible that's wrong, but our interpretation of the Bible. Now, both of those approaches, the traditional and the synthetic, are within the bounds of evangelical interpretation, although most of us will favour the latter. Now, because the primary purpose of early Genesis is polemic theology, Christians can agree to disagree about the level of historicity in these accounts. It's simply not the main point of them. Genesis is principally making distinct points about the living God and his creation. And our main focus is on those rather than starting debates about genealogies and archaeology. As for the Tower of Babel, which we come to this evening, it may have been a ziggurat type tower mere thousands of years ago or some other sort of collective human project tens of thousands of years ago. Either way, what this passage primarily gives us is the final stroke of the brush in painting the picture of our human predicament. Evil is organised, evil is universal, but evil is also doomed. Firstly, evil is organised. Do um, keep the Bible open for this and we'll have a look at the passage in some detail. Did you notice, as Simon read it, the parallels in the Babel account? So on one side, verse one, the whole world had one language. But then verse nine, the Lord confused the language of the whole world. In verse four, the people of Babel say, come, let us build ourselves a city. Otherwise we'll be scattered. And then on the other side in verse eight, the Lord did indeed scatter them over the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Verse five, the Lord came down to see the city 
And then verse seven, the Lord said, come, let us go down and confuse. So the two halves of the account mirror each other with verse six in the middle, where the Lord describes the Tower of Babel as only the beginning of what mankind will do. As we know, Genesis is a book of beginnings, the beginning of creation, the beginning of mankind, the beginning of sin, the beginning of promise. So it's no surprise to find another beginning at Babel, namely the beginning of organized evil. Sophisticated evil, collective evil, collaborative evil. Look at what the intention of the builders was in verse four. Verse four, they say, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, otherwise we'll be scattered over the whole earth. This grasping after heaven is in the same spirit as the Genesis 3 grab at the forbidden knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God in knowledge. Babel wanted to be like God in fame. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, says God in verse six. So it's wrong to simply dismiss Babel as a non-scientific way of explaining language variation. Fractured relationships between people certainly are a result of rebellion against God. But the main point of the account is to expose the darkness of which human society is capable. There's a tendency sometimes that we have to view any collective effort as better than individual ones. So we say things like two heads are better than one. Better together. Strength in numbers. But Babel reminds us that collaboration can be evil as well as good. That corporate projects are not necessarily good projects. This is self-evidence as respects religion. One individual rejecting Christ is bad enough. Many individuals doing so is tragic. An organised body of thousands or millions or more collectively denying the Christian faith and confessing a different creed entirely. It's the spirit of Babel. What about professional or academic collaborations? Oh, often pursued with the highest and noblest of intentions, but usually mixed with a dose, at least, of that we may make a name for ourselves, spirit, the spirit of Babel. What about political efforts? Parties of every stripe offer wealth, security, education, healthcare, without the slightest reference to God. Whether it's a, a northern powerhouse, or a making America great again, or ever closer union. So easily we put our faith in collective human endeavours, which easily veer close to the spirit of Babel. Evil is organised. Now none of this, let's bear in mind, excuses individual moral responsibility. The emphasis up to this point in Genesis has been on individual sin. We can't just blame society for our own wrongdoing. 
the reality of evil at a societal level is premised on its reality among those who make up societies, among us. Evil is organized, evil is universal. Uh, let's zoom out now and see where Babel sits within the wider Genesis account. The book is written in 10 sections, uh, each of them opened with the phrase, these are the generations of dot, dot, dot. Section one on the generations of the heaven and the earth related the account of Adam and Eve. Section two, their descendants. Section three, Noah and his family. Section four began at verse one of chapter 10, which we read last week, I believe, the generations of the sons of Noah. Just as Adam sinned, and then the sons of Adam sinned, leading to God's judgment in the flood, so also we now see Noah has sinned, and the sons of Noah have sinned, leading to God's judgment in dispersing them across the earth. The evil of Adam was found abundantly in his descendants. So also the evil of Noah, yes, Noah, the most righteous person in the earth, his evil is also found abundantly in his descendants. Now you might say, well, ah, but Babel is only one part of Noah's descendants, according to the Genesis accounts. Noah begat Cush, Cush begat Nimrod, and Nimrod was the one who ruled Babel. But verse 1 of chapter 11 puts us back in the global frame of reference with those words, now the whole world, dot, dot, dot. The sin of Babel, even if not committed by every living human at the time, was, was representative of what we all desire. We all desire that fame that belongs rightly to God. And so the judgment was a universal one. The sin problem didn't go away when Adam died, nor did it go away with the flood, nor does it go away when Noah died. It was still very much present among all of Noah's descendants. Now Genesis is about to turn a corner. Halfway through our reading at verse 10, you'll have seen another of those headings, those section headings, the generations of Shem, one of the smallest of those 10 sections within Genesis. It doesn't even last up to chapter 12. It follows a single line of direct descendants of Shem to the familiar name of Abram, who would become Abraham, to whom God will make some very big promises. But before we get to the hope of chapter 12 and the promises to Abraham, Babel fills up the measure of the despair of chapters 3 to 11. Whatever way it was shaken, the answer to the sin problem does not come from mankind, from us digging our way out of it. It can only come from above, as gladly it does in chapter 12, which we'll read next week. There's not a desert island we can run to where sin is not to be found, not a noble savage uninfected with the taint of rebellion. Not a single society free from the Babelite desire for fame. And there's nothing we can do about it by ourselves. Not even the best of us, people like Noah, can be good enough to cancel the debt of sin. But before we get to the promises of Abraham, 
next week, there is some good news from Babel itself. Yes, evil is organized, evil is universal, but evil is also doomed. Our final zooming out, uh, we're going to zoom out now, not to the Genesis context, but the whole Bible context. As the Lord said, this is only the beginning of what they will do. Just as Babel was totemic of all human pride, so its namesake, Babylon, is representative throughout the Bible of evil. It's not only the empire which destroyed Jerusalem and the place of exile for the Jewish nation, but it's also a corrupting influence over all the nations. But just as God intervened at Babel, he will intervene with Babylon. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, shouts the angel in Revelation chapter 18. All nations have drunk of the wine of her immorality. Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. The same Lord who came down and effortlessly confused the language of Babel will descend again to consign its evil forever. As he once scattered the proud away from a city of the earth, so he will on that day scatter them from the city of heaven. I wonder how the people of Babel felt about being scattered and divided. They probably enjoyed being of one tongue together in one city with one common project. They had a unity, but it was a false unity, a unity grounded on sin. And the judgment on them was diversity. It's interesting, isn't it, how diversity is one of the leading virtues of the modern West. We think it's a wonderful thing if we have a school or an office or a political party with people speaking 20 different languages. And yet for Babel, that was divine judgment. So we do need to be discerning in our support for diversity. There is a good diversity and an evil diversity. The diversity of creation is surely good. God said it was very good repeatedly. At the opposite extreme, a diversity of ethical viewpoints on crimes like murder or rape or theft cannot be good. Who would want to balance people thinking those acts are wrong with people who think they're acceptable? Who would celebrate or promote that sort of diversity? There is a diversity that enriches, but also a diversity that undermines. So diversity without qualification cannot be endorsed. And those who do seek unqualified diversity sometimes do so as a cover for their opposition to divine unity. The diversity they seek turns out not to be terribly diverse at all, but instead to be rather monochrome, uniform opposition to God. But it won't last because Babylon will fall. Disunity was a judgment on Babel, an earlier judgment on humanity back in Genesis chapter 6 was the limitation of life to 120 years. 
And we see that earlier judgment settling in as we go down that list of Shem's descendants. I don't know if you were adding up the numbers uh, as we read through it of when they had children and how much longer they lived after that. If you do, it runs out something like this. Shem lived 600 years. His son lived for 438 years. His son for 433 years. 469, 239, 230, 148, down to 120. The judgment settling in. We live at present between the beginnings of Genesis and the new beginnings of Revelation. And so we live with the spirit of Babel Babylon, with the disunity it brings, and with that brevity of life that we see. But we also live with the sure and certain promise of Christ's coming reign, when all those will be swept away. The evil, of course, most in our minds at present is, of course, the virus and its entailments, poverty, disruption, uncertainty, isolation, and for some, death. Along with Babylon, these will all be banished from the New Jerusalem, a city whose foundations are laid in the passage that we will, as I say, look at next week. But before then, let me pray, and then I will send around some questions to think about in groups as we continue praying together. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account that we have preserved for us in Genesis of Babel. Help us, Heavenly Father, to think about it in the way that you've intended it to be read as a comment on the collective evil that we are capable of. Help us to see us in ourselves, Heavenly Father, and to repent of it. And so turn again to the Lord Jesus for his sake. Amen. Now, I'm going to put these questions into the chat box for us to think about just a couple of things, which hopefully you can see there. And I'm going to put us into groups for another four or five minute slot for us to just have a chat about those, talk about any other applications, uh, pick, pick up on where I've gone wrong, uh, help each other out in that way, uh, and then we'll come back together and we'll have a final song at the end. Hope that makes sense. Hi, Christopher. You're muted. Oh, are we in a group of our own? Uh, no, you should have an invitation to join. Uh, oh, hang on. No, you have been unassigned for that. Um... Yeah, because I was late. That's why. I... Ah, okay. Hang on. Let me assign you to a room. There you go. Do you have an invitation there? Yes, I have. Break out room one. Right. Great.